This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. We're back for the thrilling conclusion to this three-part series on Albert Fish Op. Can we skip this one? No, because then it would be unfinished. Uh, fine. When we left Albert in part two, he'd painted a lot of houses. He'd been busy moving around a lot. This guy bounced around New York City more than a homeless person. Uh, he had raised his children, who are now all adults. He was at a crossroads in his life, probably realizing that he was getting older and wondering if there were more to life than a nine to five. He was still living in New York, and I think that pretty much catches us up. Uh, well, there was also the brutal murder dismemberment and eating of two children while ejaculating thing but that's at least worth mentioning sort of that's his nine to five if you get if you get my drift like the age that's range there that's not fair <laughs> you're right he might be misunderstood his nine TV. to five was painting <laughs> the the murdering dismembering and ejaculating while eating children thing was like a extracurricular activity but ages nine to five it's like if he had a if he had a little age sticker on him like board games do it'd be it'd say ages nine to five well he'll accept applications all the way up to 18 it's true as soon as they start fighting back though they can't play the game yeah exactly they have to be down to be down (laughs) (laughs) terrible terrible Grace Budd had just been murdered, and police at the time were no closer to catching Albert Fish than I am to catching a break from you calling me every day. (laughs) Which means they were very far off. Over the next five years, around a dozen men would be accused of the kidnapping of of Grace Budd. They don't know it, but that she's been murdered yet. They're probably assuming. But a dozen men would be accused of it. Two of those men, two men named Charles Pope and Albert Corthell, they even went to trial for it. Now, they weren't in cahoots. Uh, they were two, there was two separate trials, but both were found innocent at the end. What were their names? Charles Pope and Albert Corthell. Can you imagine being like in the really freezing cold and having to say Albert Corthell? Like if your lips were already numb, you're like, well, lips are numb. Albert Corthell. It doesn't change at all. You can say that name in any temperature. So, yeah, it's just more than the name. I was just trying to figure out how you make these connections in your brain. Like how that's what that name. How made do you brains think even of. work, though? That's a real, real question. That's a, how, do yeah, how does work? your brain even work? Yours specifically. Dozens of police officers devoted their time to the Grace Bud case. But one of them stood out. Amongst the rest, up and his name was Detective William King. Now, Detective William King will be the man that brings Albert Fish down. He was a grizzled World War One veteran and an ex locomotive fireman who had decided to be a police officer. Now, when I say a locomotive fireman, what was that? that? Yes, I entreat you for an answer on what was a locomotive fireman. It, it's the Stoker. The guy that shoveled the coal into the boiler's firebox. He wasn't a specialized fireman that only dealt with fires involving trains. I mean, if a woman ran up to him and was like, the maternity ward is on fire. He was like, 
Sorry, I only deal with train flames. I kind of, in my mind, I had this locomotive that was like full of water and everything, and they'd like drive it to a fire. But then I thought that would take a while because they'd have to build the tracks to do that. Oh, he could. Oh, you thought it was a fireman that only traveled by train. Yeah, like a fire train. So they could only put out fires within 150 feet of the train tracks. The train tracks, yeah. Yeah. Well, it might be beneficial for like a wood bridge, but at the same time, I wouldn't advise putting a heavy train on a f- wood bridge that's on fire. So right. it probably wasn't a a career that had, I don't know, longevity. Did it even exist? Am I even no, close? it didn't because it's ah. just the stoker. It's the guy that ah, shoveled okay. the coal into the boiler's firebox. Yeah. Detective William King became obsessed with the Grace Bud kidnapping. He made it his life's mission to solve it. It's all he ever thought about. And to get a good idea, there are several pictures of Detective William King with Albert Fish during the trial and after his arrest and everything. And I want you to picture, get in your head, this guy's like Dick Tracy, but in gray instead of yellow. Plus his voice is raspy. Think of like a hero detective in every crime noir from the 50s. Right, that was Detective William King. He was a walking, talking, movie crime stereotype. Huh. Just, you know what I mean? Like, probably always had a cigarette. Nah, I'll tell you this. That's the way he talked. He's like, I'm going to catch that son of a bitch. Can I get him, see? Yeah. Uh, everywhere he went, uh, he had, like, the the shadow, light shadow from a a blind, window blind on his face. Like, yeah. it didn't matter where he was. It, it, there was always a shadow window blind shadow on his face. Like, I stared out into the darkness, eh? Yeah, a lot of b- brooding. Yeah. I and mean, that's when he wasn't just standing at the window looking out of it with a glass of brandy, shaking yeah. it around with the ice. Contemplating why he was destined for a life of just one night stands. He probably, actually, I like to, I picture he gets home late every single night. And he walks in his door and he takes his coat off and he puts it on the hook. And then he goes and he takes a shower and he looks down at his feet and he lets the water drip down his face while he's in deep thought about the case, the Grace Bud case. And then when he gets out of the shower, he sits in a robe at the kitchen table with a full bottle of whiskey while watching a cigarette burn up in the ashtray. And his wife, she walks up and puts her hands on his shoulders and she says, um, you're a good cop, Will. You'll find that girl. You need to sleep. And he's like, I, I can't sleep. Not until I find this girl. She's like, you're going you're gonna to kill yourself. Why aren't about it? Well, eat your pancetta. Eat and your then, pancetta. But see, that's where, our, that's where our stories merge because they go in and they get in bed. And she turns to him and goes, well, one last time. Tell me again. Why do we only have one night stand? Get it? Because... He hasn't, like, fi- he broke one in rage over the Grace Bud case, and now he's... He broke one of the night... One of the nightstands. One of the nightstands. Like, on her side. But it was a play and, on words. And he can't, he can't bring himself to replace it until she's found. Until she's found. And that, yeah. that lulls his wife to sleep as he's like, I told you, something inside of me says, once I replace that nightstand, if she's not found... She'll never be found, Grace. Never. Then he watches her sleep. And she's an ugly sleeper. (laughs) 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 
<laughs> He's coming into the basement. <laughs> Hate watching this bitch sleep. <laughs> what? My tits are on fire. <laughs> I should leave her. I think all my stress and anxiety doesn't even have anything to do with Grace. <laughs> have to deal with her. For now, though, the trail went cold. Oh. Dick Tracy here, a.k.a. Detective William King. He's not going to give up. He's not going to give up. And in early 1929, Albert Fish gets an apartment with his son, Albert Jr., at 74th Street. At the time, Albert Jr., he's 31 years old, so probably should. I mean, this is the 20s. I mean, at 31 years old, most people, most men already... They've got nine kids. They've got a 401k. They've worked construction. They've carried their food, their lunch, and a little metal pail to work for, for 15 years at this point. He's behind. He's way behind. Still living with his dad. Yeah. Yeah. But one day, Albert Fish Jr., he's standing in the kitchen sink. He's washing dishes. And he goes to move, and his foot sticks something. It hits something behind the small curtain. That was under the sink. And I don't know why we did this in this time period where there was the curtain under the sink. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, that he yes. had the, the workings of the sink and the pots and pans, I reckon, and a jar of pennies. And um, all the poisons in the whole house were just behind a curtain. Right there so that you didn't want your children to have to work to die young. And you and you, you were always like, oh, I've got to get more Mr. Yuck stickers. Put them on the put them on the. Did you guys have our Mister Yuck stickers? No. At school, they gave us Mister Yuck stickers and taught us about poison. And we took them home and we got to stick Mister Yuck stickers on whatever had poison in it, and Mr. that would keep the kids. Yuck sticker. That would keep the kids away. Oh, from look at the, this! Yeah. No, I never seen these in my life. Yeah, it's, it's uh just just came back to me that we had Mister Yuck stickers on. On our all of the things that had poison on them, and if it had a Mister Yuck sticker on it, you're not supposed to eat it. Kids are really fucking stupid. Yep, I, bu- I believe that's why they shifted from curtains to doors. You have to put a sticker on everything in the house that they're not supposed to eat. Yeah. Ugh. So his foot hits something there. He crouches down, pulls back the curtain, and uh, under the sink there, he discovers a pair of crude. Homemade paddles, each are about two feet long, that had nails driven through them. And those nails, they were covered in blood and little chunks of dried flesh. Did you ever find anything weird that belonged to your parents' op? Anything like a nail-filled paddle full of blood, meat, and hair? Knowing how sweet, innocent, and loving and caring your mother is, I could see her being into this sort of thing. I'll tell you what. I do have one distinct memory now that you mention... I don't know why it took me this long to to come to this to come to this realization. We're talking about Albert Fish. Yes. And I don't know if you knew this, but in the 18 mid 1800s they would they would shave or shear the 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 plate plating off of coins because it was silver and they would shave the the silver plating off of the coins and they would melt down the silver and they would make things out of that silver, and one of the more more common things that they would make actually is a fish server. Like it looks like a, it looks sort of like a spatula, but it's shaped like like it's useless almost. Seems like, but they would melt down 
silver coins and make them into fish servers. And I didn't even think about that until you said Albert Fish just recently. Maybe it was the pairing with Mr. Yuck stickers that brought it back to my memory, but crazy coin fact there. Right. So did you ever find something weird that belonged to your parents out? No. Okay. No. Nope. All right. So I guess we can move. Yep. Nah. Around 6.30 that evening, Albert Fish Sr., the bad one, he returns home from whatever in God's name he had been doing, outdoing, probably molesting some small black child and... When he gets home, his son, Albert Jr., confronts him at the front door with the paddles. He, he said that whenever Albert Fish walked in, he yelled, quote, What is the idea of these damned things? Unquote. His father responded, quote, I use them on myself. I get these feelings that come over me, and every time that they do, I have to torture myself with those paddles. Albert dropped the subject immediately. Albert Jr. did. But it had flesh all over it, and he could probably deduce that his dad wasn't just a walking bag of loose flesh. So, kind of interesting. It was his flesh. It was Albert's flesh. Oh, from so his it was back. Like a Salise. It was a Salise. I don't know what a Salise is, but it was from his back. Mm, yeah. Okay. And Albert Jr. He just drops the subject immediately, like you would. Mm-hmm. Oh, shucks, Pa. That makes sense. No further questions. I'm sorry for bringing it up. I would have more questions. I would, too. I wouldn't move topic from that. What feelings are you talking about? What are you thinking about that is so bad that you have to beat the flesh off of your own back? You go to work, which seems pretty decent. Good pay. You come home. I make you pancetta. I mean, sure, there's the whole rolling yourself up in carpet and laying in the floor of the dining room all night. That was... Odd, I'll admit. There's the pumping your fist in the air and claiming that you're Christ in the middle of an apple orchard on a hill. That's a little odd. Yeah. But what are you thinking about where you have to beat your back bloody into a pulp? Is it something you could share, Dad? Is it something we could talk about, Dad? He just dropped the subject. That was it. The end. Odd flex. Spring of 1929, Albert. He is now working as a dishwasher and a handyman at the Steeplechase Hotel in Rockaway Beach, Queens. He was the handyman there. If something needed fixed, he'd fixed it. And when he wasn't fixing things, he was washing the dishes there at the Steeplechase Hotel. I was going to say they could reduce that down to just one job if they just get standard standard dishes they don't need. Now, around this time in the spring of 1929, while he's working here, he does start writing obscene letters to women that he finds in the matrimonial section of the newspapers. And uh, also women in the classified ads that are looking for love or work. Um, that's right. He becomes one of the early versions of men that send random dick pics via PM on Facebook, Instagram, etc. He was a real pioneer on the perversion front. Honestly, Albert Fish was. Wow. He was ahead of his Gross. time. Yeah. Very ahead of his time. Imagine Albert Fish so- with a Facebook. Yeah, I was going to say he seems like a social media pioneer of sorts. Have quill pen, Will. And you know his Facebook picture would be like from the chest, taken from the chest. Yeah. Where his chin is bunched up. I mean, he was skinny, so it doesn't have much, but it would just be a really unflattering picture. And it would be him posting under random girl's picture, show me your bobs. Yeah, show me your bobs. (laughs) I have cash app, show me your bobs. Only it's like a four-year-old's birthday party. 
<laughs> oh gosh, I just threw up in my mouth a little. The full full effect of that statement hit me. Uh. Now, Albert's favorite targets for these perverse letters were landladies that were looking for renters. In the letters, he would typically present himself as a successful and wealthy Hollywood producer that was looking for a place to board his non-existent, mentally challenged teenage son named Bobby. That's a lie. It is a lie. He would tell them that he was in need of discipline and go into detail for them on how they he needed them to discipline his, his young, mentally challenged son, Bobby. He wanted Bobby beaten with boards and belts. And here is an excerpt from one of those letters that he wrote to one of these women about how he wanted Bobby taken care of. Quote, he does not wet or mess his clothes or the bed. He will tell you when he has to use the toilet, number one or number two. For number one, his pants must be unbuttoned at the crotch and his monkey taken out. His pants and drawers are all made with a drop seat. All you have to do is loosen three buttons in the back and down they come. Saves a lot of undressing. Handy when you want to spank him. The doctor says three or four good spankings a day on his bare behind will do him good as he is nice and fat in that spot. When he don't mind you, then you must strip him and use the cat o' nine tails. Say you won't hesitate to use the paddle or cat o' nine tails on him. When he needs it, unquote. Very creative for for describing a child that doesn't exist. Well, which which part of that was creative? Just all the abuse that he condoned. Yeah, I mean it's it's about he wants these women to talk about beating. It's not really about Bobby. It's just fulfilling his fantasy of these women hurting some somebody. So he would send these letters in hopes that they would Respond. RSVP and then there would be some dialogue back and forth. So he not. Oh, wow. He was really ahead of his time. This was troll level. Yes. Yes. Like he was troll. Because he also them. liked the shock factor. Yeah. So even if they didn't respond, it still got him horny that he was like ruining some little old lady's day. Wow. So it was a win win. Ah. Wow. They respond. That's a win. They don't respond. That's a win because they were so horrified that it ruined their day. So it made him hard. Just hard. But if they did respond with even the slightest bit of interest, he would go on. And each letter that they would they would they would exchange would get more and more graphic until finally he worked in that he really would like it. If that lady would let him eat their shit and drink their piss. That's what he was always go. That's what he was working towards. That was the crescendo of the letters. If he can cock talk them into letting him eat their shit and drink their piss or their peanut butter. As did anyone ever get, uh, uh, entreat this, this at this point where they like, dear sir, come on by. I'm sure it happened. I'm sure. I mean, if, uh, think about it on Facebook. You know that those guys sending those dick pics to random women, 99% of them are horrified and disgusted. But there has to be some of them that respond or they wouldn't keep doing it, right? I'll tell you a private story with no names. I was reached out to. A friend of mine reached out to me and he was like, hey, I have another friend and she has been propositioned by a guy to get a lot of money just for talking to her but she's kind of uncomfortable with it and i'm like as you should be 
And then he said, I was just wondering, just because you're in the States and he was he was in another country over in Africa at the time. And, and he said, would you be willing to to create a cash app for her? And, you know, that way, you know, it's really not connected to her or anything. And I was like, what's happening right now? Yeah. But it was it felt very Albert Fish like like I felt like I was setting one of those women up or like holding their hand and writing the letter for them. This was somebody in your family? No, it was a friend of mine who reached out to me. Oh, regarding that sounds a like maybe she his. was getting scammed. It, it was a it was a man, my friend, man friend of mine, and he was like, "Hey, I've got a friend, but we're both here in Africa. Would you?" And this is somebody I trusted, and you know, this is this was, story is getting so much more complicated than <laughs> he was yeah. in Africa as well. They were both in Africa, and he was. Why like, was he in Africa? An, um, so he was he was stationed there. Okay. And uh, we're at she, war with Africa. Well, no, we we weren't at war with them, but it was like a it was like a um, what do you call that a humanitarian mission? Yeah, kind of thing. It wasn't a mission mission. It was like you know build wells and. Houses, and he was like, "This woman has a legit like. Well, I've looked into him, and he's legit, and you know he he'll pay her money just to talk and everything. But we're uncomfortably because blah blah blah. You're in the states. Could you make a cash app? And I was instantly uncomfortable with the whole thing, as you should have been. Yeah, he followed through though. He paid. It's interesting. Hmm. My wife used to sell her Hooters socks. That's called a bra. No. No, the socks on her feet. They used to wear these big, long socks, and guys would pay her to to to. They didn't want them washed. They wanted them after she had worked like a twelve hour shift. She would get a like a couple hundred bucks out of a pair of good worn in dirty Hooter socks. Wow! Paid her electric bill on like a number of occasions. Did anyone ever? Uh, I'm trying to think because Hooter socks. That's. You said that, but it sounds like just a bra. It sounds like a name for a bra. So did anyone ever pay her for her clam chowder tray liner? <laughs> I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. That would be a that'd be underwear. I was just trying to yeah. come up with like a Yeah, I got you got you got it. Clam chowder tray liner. <laughs> but she sold her I'm sure, I mean I'm sure she did. I mean, not while we were, not after we started dating that I know of. I would have cared. None of my business. But while we were dating, even, well, yeah, while we were dating, she was selling socks a lot. That's what paid our bills sometimes. Or selling her dirty socks. That socks. Also unfair because I can't think of anything that I wear that someone would be like, I'll pay you if you just take that off and send it to me. She said that she would, at the end of her shift, take them off, go in the bathroom, take them off. One guy in particular, one old man, and he would right there at the table, didn't give a shit. He would just start, just start inhaling them at the table. Just, that is and he so... would like feel of them and get the sweat on his fingers. He just, God, it really made him hard. That's crazy. That's an Albert Fish level kind of guy right there. It's really common though, honestly. I, I, I don't I get know it. We've... I don't understand the sexual attraction to feet. I don't have a problem with feet. I just, they're, to me, as sexually attractive as, like, like the leg of a table. Yeah. I was going to go with, like, the armpit of a dolphin. It's, like, not even a sexual thing. I don't get it. But to each their own. Yep. Whatever floats your boat. I get harder eating wings at Hooters. 
Me too. <laughs> Probably harder than that guy was sniffing them socks, honestly, because I'm overweight and I really like chicken wings. Is it hard for you to make eye contact when that experience is happening? They're like, can I get you anything else? No, it's kind of like, part of the experience. <laughs> they have no idea what's going know. on. Yeah. Just make extra eye contact. Like, I could use some more ranch. I really could use some more ra- ranch. It really made me really hard while I was eating the wings if I made eye contact with the guy that was sniffing my wife's socks. <laughs> Gosh, you're at the table, too. <laughs> It's one of my uncles. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Anyways, I thought I'd best you with my Africa story, but no, you stayed local and still still won. Wow. You know, now that I think about it, on deployment, sometimes we would wear a pair of socks for like a month at a time, right? And on deployment, you don't keep socks. You throw them away. Because there's no way to wash them, really. Uh, I mean, you would wash your your underwear and your pants if you could in a bucket with water and like a bar of soap. But socks are kind of a lost cause after they've been yeah. muddy and it, like there's not really. So by the time you would be ready to throw a pair of socks away, they would almost stand on their own when they dried. They would just Ugh. be like cardboard. I can only imagine how much you could get for a pair of those socks to the right person. Wow, because they would just. You could also use them as stink bombs. You could just fund the military with them, really, if you think about it. By selling deployment socks. Use deployment yeah. socks. Yeah. That's a missed opportunity. They're leaving money on the table. They really are. <laughs> Got all these old ladies putting all their blood, sweat, and tears into making you guys like Afghans and quilts and stuff. And hours and hours when you guys are already producing the, the moneymaker right there in the sand. Naturally. Non GMO, all natural. <laughs> Not non GMO, non NGO, all gluten free. <laughs> oh man! Anyways, here's an excerpt from one of those letters uh, when it crescendos and Albert gets to what he really wants to talk about, which is eating their shit peanut butter and drinking their piss. Okay, here we go. <sighs> Quote: I wish you could see me now. I am sitting in a chair, naked. The pain is across my back, just over my behind. When you strip me naked, you will see a most perfect form. Yours, sweet honey of my heart. I can taste your sweet piss, your sweet shit. You must pee-pee in a glass, and I shall drink every drop of it as you watch me. Tell me when you want to do number two. I will take you over my knees, pull up your clothes, take down your drawers, and hold my mouth to your sweet honey fat ass, and... Eat your sweet peanut butter as it comes out fresh and hot. That is how they do it in Hollywood. Unquote. And if you ask anybody on the QAnon board, they will tell you that that is, in fact, how they do it in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. I actually read an article that said Tom Hanks took his pay for Turner and Hooch and pounds of hot peanut butter from the local orphanage. Turner and Hooch also sounds like the act of trying to extract peanut butter from a child. <laughs> Turner, Hooch. And that's a good movie. It's about a man and his dog, and God, it's, it gets into shenanigans. It does. That dog does. It's really, but they find friendship at the end of the movie. 
Yeah. And the dog. Now, who would have thought it? Because they got they didn't get along in the beginning. They it was didn't. like, oh, this dog is such a thorn in my side. Tom Hanks was, but it turns out ended up being his best friend. It's really a social commentary on yeah. many levels. Yeah, I'm still waiting. I mean, with this relationship, for the part where it is no longer a thorn in the side. February sixth, nineteen thirty. February 6, 1930. Despite still being legally married to Anna, Albert Fish marries another woman by the name of Myrda Nicholas, whom he had met through a matrimonial agency in the newspaper. Now, he will eventually get married a total of four times without ever getting divorced once. These these other marriages, they're not even worth mentioning because they were so brief and, and uneventful in terms of Albert Fish's life. Um, they were short and irrelevant. And as we already mentioned, Albert Fish doesn't really get close to women anyway. He doesn't have normal relationships with adults. He's almost uninterested. These women, though, all four women that he marries, he does eat their shit and drink their piss and do all the weird stuff in the bedroom. That's really the only reason that he married them was to do the weird sex stuff. That's right. Albert Fish convinced four women to marry him. I know that you've done this a couple times and it's just so quaint and everybody really likes it. Where we break from the story to give an update on your sister's babies. And I wanted to update you, Kent, because okay. they, they're they sending me pictures, progress pictures. And I just sent you a picture from Facebook, on Facebook Messenger of, of how it's going. And I thought... Probably more more like ha, kind of a ha-ha, they're talking to me, not you. But at the same time, it's sweet. It's so sweet to know that they're... Yeah, my sister, she's in. The, she's going to be having twins. She's at the hospital right now. You've seen the picture there? That's a picture that they sent to me. Yeah, that's my sister. She's in the hospital bed. Bless her heart. And she's just holding on, trying to hold on to the... Hold, hold them in. Hold them in for a little while. Let them bake more. She spent Christmas and her birthday... In the hospital. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Anyway, I just, uh, you know, I, I, lo- I know everyone loves it when you break in with breaking news, so I thought I'd break in. With and she sent you break- that while we were recording. Yeah. Yep, just just now. Well, I love you, Natalie and Clifton. That's her husband. Cliff, we call him. I love them, too. Anyways, I mean, yeah. Albert Fish convinced four women to marry him. So if you're listening to this as a listener... And you're in your grandma's basement, you're 41 years old, and you're gluing together a replica of the Millennium Falcon and listening to Bjork (laughs) while a giant half-naked anime pillow stares at you from your twin-sized mattress. (laughs) Even you have a chance. That was a perfect picture you just created there. Everyone knows who you're talking about. Uh, Four women. Albert Fish convinced to marry him. Um, now, this woman, this newest woman that he married, 60-year-old Murda, she had two daughters. One was a 14-year-old named Mary Nicholas. The other uh, was a younger daughter but was unnamed. In all my sources, not like in real life. She wasn't just, they just never got around to naming her and she died unnamed. Just like I could never find the younger daughter's name. But they were Fish's <laughs> stepdaughters. Okay. Now, on the second night of knowing the girls, second night, Fish begins to get these girls to play, quote, games, 
And the games were called. Now, this came out during the trial. These girls talked about the games that he that they played with Albert. And there were two games in particular. One game was called Sack of Potatoes Over. And the mm. other was called Buck Buck. How many hands up? I can't even I can't even put a visual together with what that happens in the games. They're pretty simple. Okay. They're pretty simple. Yeah. And sack of potatoes over, Albert Fish would go into a room and change into a thin little pair of brown shorts. A little bitty thin pair of brown shorts, like a 1920s version of boxers. And then, pretty much half naked, he would throw the girls over his shoulder, and their goal was to take their nails and dig them into his back as deep as they could as they slid down. Oh. And that was the game. And that sounds like a lot of fun to play with a frail, half-naked old man just having his thin, wrinkled, clear old skin bunching up under your fingernails. Gross. <laughs> also, I just realized he's not really good at naming games because it's, it's too literal. Like, that's exact sack of potatoes over. Like yeah, and what's the, how do you win? Yeah, what's the, what's the goal? I don't want to know. Actually, I don't want to know. I'll tell you what the goal is. They didn't know it. The goal was ejaculation. (laughs) Not theirs either. No. The other game, it was called Buck Buck, How Many Hands Up? It was a little bit more complicated. He would once again get in his little bitty shorts, and then he would get on all fours. And he would give one of the girls a large paint stirrer or a brush, depending on the knot, that he had brought with him. And while he was on all fours, he would have one of the girls sit on his lower back. So you remember how you would give your kids horse rides? Yeah, like a daddy saddle, like the yeah. daddy saddle. Like where, that's, what, yeah. that's what, so far, that's what's going on here. The only difference is he's half naked. He's in these little bitty pair of shorts. And these are his stepdaughters that he's known a total of two days. Uh. And while he's on all fours, one of the girls would sit on his lower back there and she would start holding up fingers. And Albert would have to guess how many fingers they were holding up without looking. And if he guessed wrong, they had to smack him however many times that he get, whatever the number was that he guessed. So if they hold up three fingers and Albert guesses 27, they have to smack him 27 times. Now, if you're doing the math, how many fingers do you have total? Uh, 18, 20. So you got 10 fingers. Yeah. Total. And Albert's guessing 16 and 14. It was like he was really bad at this game. Mm. And they would end up just beating his back with this brush or paint stirrer because he was so bad at the game of guessing. Yeah. He could never guess right. Uh. He always guessed high, too. So they would have to hit him a lot. He probably were like, this guy... Is an idiot. <laughs> They're looking at his hands. How many fingers does he have? How many does he think we have? They're looking at their hands. How many people does he think's on his back? <clears throat> now, one time he tried to introduce a third game. It's called the needle game. And he at, at a table, he, he laid out a bunch of sewing needles on the table. And uh, they were all to compete to see how many they could shove completely under their fingernails. Under their fingernails? Well, they were all three going to take needles and shove them under their fingernails as far all the way. Who could shove them all the way up? Albert won. 
he stuck five all the way in underneath his fingernails before the girls could even get one just a little ways in. Uh, I'm talking all the way, completely under his nail. Wow. Where is the mother? Yeah, good question. Oh, she wasn't at the table. Or while he's naked with her children playing these games, where is this fucking woman? Or later when she's like, what's wrong with your nails, honey? And yeah. they explain the game. Like, oh, it's just jerky. <laughs> it's fish jerky. This is Albert Fish and Murda Nicholas divorced two months later in April. There you go. There yeah. you go. And that's, that's how most mom. of his relationships go. Mom showed up. Also, her name was Murda, which is not a good sign. Dodged a bullet there. <sighs> September 1930. Finally, after two years of writing his filthy poo letters, one of them finally lands him in jail after he forgets to not put a return address on it. Oops. <laughs> Dummy. And that was on one sent to housekeeper Edna Solarid, who had been looking for work. And yeah. you know, anybody named Edna isn't wanting to talk dirty. That's the last thing that anybody named Edna has ever wanted to do. I don't even think anybody named Edna was even born with a sexuality. <laughs> they're all asexual every edna ever and if they do have sex it's with their shoes and socks on their dress is just hocked up and the lots are definitely off and it's only to make babies and they hate every minute of it and there is to be full-on eye contact <laughs> and after you ejaculate you have to pray for forgiveness together <laughs> Oh, gosh. Uh, so Edna's horrified. Edna Solarid is horrified by these letters. And Albert is quickly arrested while at work at his hotel dishwashing. Afterwards, they search his apartment. And it's there that they find his cat of nine tails, the nailed paddles, and a carrot and an old sausage that were covered in shit. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Geez. An old rotten sausage covered in shit as well as a carrot. Now, when they asked Albert Fish about the sausage and carrot and why, what was going on with them, Fish said, quote, I stick them up my ass, unquote. Just, that's just straight up. Stick them up my ass. I wish I could be there in that moment because, you know, there was like an awkward pause for a moment because everybody's terrified of stuff like this in the 20s, right? The idea of a man putting anything in his ass is like, you go straight to hell. Straight yeah. to hell. The only way you can go to hell quicker outside of, like, murdering children is by putting something in your ass. That's the only sin worse than murdering children. And there, they're standing here with an old sausage and a carrot covered in shit. And he says, I'll stick them up my ass. And you know there was, like, a pause for a moment. And I like to think that to, like, break that silence, one of the offers was eventually, like, uh, oh, well, we're worried you might be doing something weird with it. <laughs> I wonder if similar to like, you know, serial killer psychopathy, how, you know, there's always a cooling off period. I, yeah. I wonder if like he ever was satiated, though, you know, no, like I never. Wonder, yeah. See, to me, that says this goes so far beyond a physical thing. It, it's it's a, it's so deeply. A mental problem. It's every minute of his life. Ugh, 
Yes. And it's like I said, I think in part, was it part one or part two, that like even in the dent where I had to do like a, so things are going to get crazy and they're going to be crazy for the rest of his life. But this is what's going on in his downtime, right? When you went in the periods that I skip over and I had to talk, bring up what the things that he enjoyed doing, shoving alcohol filled cotton balls up his ass and lighting them on fire, shoving needles into his perineum. Shoving roses up his dick hole until the base of the rose touched his head of his dick and then pulling them out so that it would rip up his urethra and then eating the rose. That's all in the downtime. That's that's the less crazy stuff. That's the stuff where we just glided over. Gross. I also, I don't know how you operate in just normal life if uh, you're, you're banging on your body that much. Well, he loved it. What yeah, do you mean you don't know how if you enjoy it? Yeah, it's true. Like even the 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 residual pain was probably a, a high for him. The reason he liked leaving the needles in is because he had like pain on the go. Yeah, and was like, oh, I can just leave them in there, and then if I'm at a bench somewhere, I can just kind of shift my hips, and it'll stab my insides, and I get it's like the gift that keeps on giving. It's weird because. I don't know if he knew this, but all you have to really have is a 99 Suburban to, and all of that is at your fingertips. Pain on the go. Everything you just mentioned happens in the 99 Suburban. Or an iPod with U2 on it. <laughs> that can't be deleted. <laughs> As for the obscene letters... To the police here, he does admit there's they're, quote, sort of a habit, and he was sent to Bellevue for psychiatric evaluation, and it's there that he spends 30 days before being released. And when they released him, they said, quote, he's eccentric, but he's harmless. Yeah, no. Important to note, at this point in his life, he's molested, sexually assaulted hundreds of children and murdered and eaten two of them, maybe more that we don't know of. Murdered three, eaten two. I'm sorry. Is there enough now documented that they're like, this man should never see the light of day? No, they let him loose. They released him after a month and they said he was eccentric but harmless. But did they know about the things? No, none of that has come out to light. But I feel like, yeah. I mean, if, if you, I feel like one look at his back and you're like, oh, something is like really wrong here, especially in the 20s. Yeah, yeah. There, there was enough evidence, especially after having him for a month, you would think that all of his isms and... Yeah, some of those cracks are going to start showing. Yeah, you'd think. In 1932, Albert Fish moves to an apartment at 200 East 52nd Street in Room 7. And that building, uh, it was destroyed in 1964, so it was leveled in 64 and then replaced with another 21-story apartment building. And in 1933, 63-year-old Albert Fish moves in with his son, Albert Fish Jr., who is now 34, Albert Fish Jr. is, at 1883 Amsterdam Avenue on Manhattan's Upper West Side. That building was torn down in 1940, but it was torn down seven years later. This is what I mean when I say he moved around, he moved around a lot. So he moved uh, to 200 East 52nd Street, Room 7 in 1932, and then in 33, not even a year later, um, he moves in at 1883 Amsterdam Avenue. It also seems like maybe he had to keep moving around because they seem to be tearing down all the buildings he'd move into. Well, I mean, the first one, it didn't get tore down until 67 or 64. I'm sorry. 
but it did but it, it makes what I'll tell you what it makes me wonder. All jokes aside, is what crimes he committed that we're not aware of? Because he admitted later that the reason he moved so much was to avoid. Like he would often move right after committing an atrocious crime. Yeah. And these. So here in 32, we know he moves in 33, less than a year later, he moves. So what happened that made him move that we're not we don't even know about? Yeah. You know how many children go missing in New York City, especially in the 20s, right? The 30s. People were selling their children. I mean, it, a, a missing child was uh, not a headline. And Albert Fish, by the way, was not when he got caught like a braggadocious. You know how a lot of these killers, when they get caught, they want them to be. They want to be the scariest person imaginable. Yeah. That's what. That's they want notoriety. They, that yeah. wasn't really Albert Fish. Jesse Pomeroy. When we did the episode on Jesse Pomeroy, that was a big part. Of him when he got caught was just he wanted everybody to be terrified of him. He wanted to be famous. Albert Fish wasn't really concerned with being famous. He didn't. No, I probably couldn't maintain. knew he couldn't maintain his lifestyle if if people obviously knew about it. So hide those details. Then that's what I'm saying. He moved so much. Like yeah. what is sparking the this move? Something that we don't even know about. I guarantee it. Things that he has done. He's like, oh, got to bounce. So, like I said, in 33, he moves in with his, his uh, son, Albert Fish Jr., at 1883 Amsterdam Avenue in Manhattan's Upper West Side. On top of living there, the two fish men, so Albert and his son, have been hired to take care of it, that building there at Amsterdam, Ave- Amsterdam at 1883 Amsterdam Avenue. So they're hired to take care of it, as well as three other buildings on that street. So they're the repair maintenance men. For the, the the building that they live in there and the three other buildings on Amsterdam Avenue. In June of 1934, Albert Fish Jr. is repainting the lobby of the building that him and his father live in. So he's standing there painting. And while he's doing that, one of the tenants in the building runs down in, a, in, a, in, a, in just a panic. She says that a pop has just burst in her room and water was just filling her apartment. It was a matter. It was an emergency. So Albert Fish Jr., he runs upstairs, you know, to help. He, he, he's he got to go to his own apartment first to fetch his tools, though, from the hallway closet in his apartment. And when he enters the apartment, he hears this. What was that? But it wasn't coming from his father's bedroom. It was coming from his own bedroom. Now, for whatever reason, the hallway in this apartment that him and his father lived in had, I don't know if this was a common thing in this time period, but it had windows that looked into the bedrooms from the hallway. I've never heard of that. Have you? Windows in the hallway. In the hallway. No. That'd be really, oh, into the room? Into the room. So you go down, you go in the hallway in this apartment and there were windows in the hallway that looked into the bedrooms of the apartment. Yeah, that seems eerie. Right. Really odd. But they had curtains over the windows on the inside of the bedroom, so somebody, so they had privacy. But when uh, Albert Fish Jr. enters the apartment, he hears this slapping and grunting. He creeps down the hallway and looks through one of the small windows there that the apartment had in the hallways. And apparently the curtains weren't pulled all the way. and And he looks in through there. And his father is standing in the middle 
of Albert Jr.'s bedroom completely naked. He's got his dick in one hand, and he is just yanking on it like he's milking a cow. And he's got the paddle with the nails driven through them. And the other hand just beating his back. Just bloody. Just beating it to... He's beating his meat while turning his back into meat. <clears throat> and and obviously he's not worried about getting caught. No. No, but I would be like mad. Like if I had a roommate that did this kind of thing, it wouldn't be any of my business. I'd be like, yeah, you can beat yourself, jerk off, whatever you want to do. But do it in your own fucking bedroom. Yeah. You, uh, you're paying for 75% of the rent this, this month. It's his son. So his son is probably a bit aware of his father's. His father's what? Like, there's no way he doesn't know about all the stuff. All of his children grow up to be good contributing members of society that are, that end up being good parents. And they knew that they just thought he was weird. They didn't know that he was doing all this other horrible stuff. It's so hard to believe, but I guess, you know, he keeps it under wraps well enough. Because it's important to know, like we already talked about this, that Albert Fish, according to all of his children, was a good father. He loved them and cared for them, never abused them, never molested, never did any of the stuff, took care of them, made sure they had roof over their head, uh, food in their stomachs. They said he was a great father. They just thought he was weird. He had all these little cur- – they thought he was quirky. Isn't uncommon, I guess, with psychopaths. They can maintain some kind of like two lane. Yeah, BTK. Yeah. One of the biggest piece of shits that has ever walked the face of this earth was, according to his daughter, a good father. Yeah. And then you got, I mean, we always talk about it, but like Bundy, Bundy never touched his like girlfriend. So Albert Fish Jr., he sees his dad doing this in his bedroom. And instead of saying something again, like seems to happen over and over again in the story. They just kind of are freaked out. He quietly gets his tools from the closet in the hallway and creeps away and uh, leaves the apartment and goes and fixes, never mentions it to anybody until court, well, until trial. October 1934, Albert Fish moves once again. He moved in with his with his uh, son, Albert Fish Jr., at this building in June of thirty four. And then in October of 34, he moves yet again. Once again, man, that's what I'm saying. Like, the things that he must have done that we don't even know about. Yeah, he's bouncing a lot. It's no, there's no doubt. Also makes you wonder if, like, why, if, if at any point police departments in those cities, even like today, would be like, hey, let's crack open some cold cases from I, that period of time. Yeah. I think it would you certainly know. be worth it. I think you would solve probably a lot of murders. I would bet my next two years of earnings, if we could talk to the the all-knowing, that there were way more murders than what he was convicted of that we know about. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So like I said, in October of 34, Albert Fish moves into room seven of a boarding house that was located at 200 East 52nd Street. Now, a boarding house, for those that don't know, is... Uh, it was a house, a large house that had several rooms, but it had a, a a community living quarters, living room, and everything. They're basically just renting out bedrooms. Yeah, the bathrooms are shared. The bathrooms are shared. Kitchen shared. Yeah, might be a meal here or there. It's a B and B, really, yeah. isn't it? It's a B and B. Yeah. 
So here at 200 East 52nd Street, Albert Fish is renting out, renting out room seven of this boarding house. And that building has since long been demolished and is now an upscale area with about 23 billion banks. That's literally, it's just all banks. It's just. But he only stays there for two months and moves out once again on November 11th to 55 East 128th Street. And that building was tore down in 2003. So here's another, once again, case of moving. He stays there only two months. But the fact that he moved on November 11th is the important part, Op, because on Monday, November 12th, 1934, the day after Albert moves out of the boarding house, six years after the murder of 10-year-old Grace Bud, it was a cold gray day, an anonymous letter arrives at the Bud residence. So the parents of Grace Bud that Albert had previously, six years earlier, murdered and eaten. Albert, for whatever reason, gets a, a, an urge to send the family of this murdered young lady, the mom and father, a letter. I can't remember. Have I... <sighs> I have such an encyclopedic knowledge of, uh, co- coins and things. Like, I can't even, re- I can't remember when the uh, last time I imparted some, like, some knowledge on you. Did I do that today? Have yeah, I you just that? did it with the silver. You talked about something to do with silver, and I don't know, I wasn't listening, but it was something to do with silver of the coins, and they would turn them into, oh, pie, the fish server. paddles. Right, okay. Or tennis rackets or something. Yeah. It's just crazy. Every once in a while, like, a word will just trigger, like, bud. And I'm like, oh, wait, you mean, like, the 1841 O-seated dime closed bud, which is a rare, very rare coin because the back of it, all the flowers are closed. Like, it's flowers. closed buds. And when you said bud, I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh. The world, it, it's like a small, tiny world we live in. Yeah. Twelve thousand dollars for the twelve. You've got oh, one. Gee, it got to be the O eighteen forty one O. So uh, uh, you know. So it's only the O. Yeah, make sure you. Yeah, make sure you're looking, looking close. Okay. And is that a penny? No, that's a seat. That's a dime. It's, it's a, a dime, dime from eighteen forty one. It's a seated dime. So on the front of it, there's like a kind of. Uh, a, I don't care. Yeah kind of a character sitting down looking off right. to the side like what you talking about like like if you, it's funny it makes me laugh every time because if you look at the character the person sitting on the front they're looking over the show like who's coming through the door right <laughs> <laughs> so funny yeah i wish it was it'd be good for the show this letter that was sent to grace bud's family is now known as the grace bud letter and it's kind of infamous now. I'm sure you've heard it. And it was from Albert Fish. <sighs> when the letter arrives, Mrs. Bud, poor woman, the mother, she's illiterate. She can't read. And uh, when the postman handed it to her, she hands it to her son, Edward, who is now 24 years old. If you remember, he was the original target. He was 18 years old when Albert Fish showed up the first time. Mm. Edward's now 24. And a- Edward is able to read. Edward takes the, the note, the letter, unfolds it, and reads it silently to himself first, with Delia watching him read it, and she watched, watches his face twist into horror. Now, without saying anything, he turns and goes straight out the door carrying the letter, runs out the door, with his mom yelling behind him, what, what is it, what does it say, what is it? 
Edward Budd runs straight to Detective William King's office and hands it to him. Now, William King had kept in touch with the family of Grace Budd. He's still been working on this case for six years now. He hasn't given up. Hands it straight to Detective William King's office. William King gets very excited because this is the first time that the, the, the kidnapper, the killer, whoever, has come out of the woodwork. Right. It's been a cold case for, or not a cold case, but they've had nothing for six years. And and guess what? We have the unaltered letter, complete with Fish's misspellings, grammatical errors. It reads like this. Quote. My dear Mrs. Budd, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except his head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass, boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next. He went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, rear, right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street. Brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her, on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wild flowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First I stripped her naked. How did she kick, bite, and scratch? I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her. Though, I could have, had I wished. She died a virgin. Unquote. <sighs> no comment. That's the infamous Grace Bud letter. And if you'll notice, uh, a lot of podcasts leave out the first part about his this imaginary friend that he makes up, Captain John Davis, who 
told him about the travels overseas and this famine in China where they're eating children, blah, 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 all this shit. This, I think, is Albert. So what's going on here is if you remember in part one, later in trial, Albert will, will, attrib- will blame his brother for what developed his obsession with cannibalism because of the stories his brother would tell when he caught, got home from deployment from the Navy about cannibalism in foreign lands and all that stuff, right? Well, and it's it's at this point. I don't know if I don't know if you know, it, but it's actually well documented now. Late eighteen hundreds, there was a famine in China that was so great that parents ate their children. Yes, it, it was massive. But they weren't selling children in the markets in butcher shops. I, yeah. That's bullshit. Probably not. This probably is probably what happened here. I would say is a variation of a story that his brother told him, but he can't say who told him that. Obviously, because it'll give away his identity. Right. And I think that's what that entire first part is. It's him trying to say how he got obsessed with this cannibalism. But didn't want to really snitch. But didn't really want to snitch. Yeah. Huh. Curious. Whew. It's a rough one to read, though. Not even going to think about it. I read it. So now you've got to. So you go ahead and read the whole thing and we'll listen. No. I can't. Still just just read the last, the last couple sentences then. She died a virgin. Okay. Well, Detective King, he then pulls up a copy of the Western Union that had been sent the first time as Frank Howard. If you remember, he sent a Western Union to the Bud's residence in part two that said, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it today. I'll be there tomorrow. And Albert Fish had stolen that Western Union that day at the apartment. But thankfully, Western Union keeps keeps copies of those for records. So I was able to pull a copy from Western Union. And the handwriting between the letter and the Western Union was a perfect match. And he knew then that it was the man that had indeed, indeed taken Grace Bud. This is some good police work, what we're getting ready to talk about here, especially for the 30s. This is the 30s. This is Dick Tracy. This is that guy that lays and looks at his wife sleeping at night and thinking about where's little Grace Bud. God. He's on a diet of cigars and cigarettes and whiskey. His wife's lamp's just laying on the ground. Yeah. Over there. You're a good cop, William. You got to get some sleep. So the letter that this that had been sent to the Bud residence, he, he feels he's gotten all the evidence or information that he can out of that. He, he then begins to look at the envelope. And the envelope op is what eventually leads to Albert Fish's capture. Because on its back flap, there was a six-sided symbol with the letters NYPCBA around it. And after some investigating, he found out that that stood for New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. Now you're thinking, that doesn't mean anything to me. And we've never heard of that in the story. You're correct. And guess what? Still doesn't mean anything to this day. In terms of Albert Fish, Albert Fish had no association with the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. This is why it matters. The next day, Detective King made a trip down to the NYPCBA to start asking them questions. Because clearly this envelope had came from them. And nobody knew anything. They didn't know of a Frank Howard who Albert Fish said he was. But while he was there, a nervous young man by the name of Lee Sikowski approaches Detective King. And he tells Detective King that a few months prior, he had stolen some of the stationery from the NYPCBA. And he had accident so he had stolen some some uh some envelopes that had their stamp on it. He had stolen some papers that had their stamp on it. 
And he had been living at a boarding house at the time. And he had left it in the living room of that boarding house at a kind of community desk there for writing. Detective King then scuffled across down quickly to that boarding house at 200 East 52nd Street and talked to the landlord there. Her name was Frida Schneider. And when the detective described uh, the kidnapper of Grace Bud, the landlady got a peculiar expression on her face and said, quote, Why, that sounds like Mr. Fish. When asked if she he still lived fun. there, do what? what? She sounds funny. Uh, I'm just reporting the facts. That's exactly what she sounds like. That was actually an audio recording that we had of her saying that. That's funny. You want me to play it again? Play it again yeah. for me, Op. Okay, here we go. Why, that sounds like Mr. Fish. <laughs> when asked if he still lived there, she says, quote, no, he moved out just a few weeks prior. <laughs> he asked her to get the register, which was a book that boarders used to check in and out of the rooms. And Detective King compared the letter to the handwriting for Albert Fish. It was a perfect match. He now knows that Frank Howard, the man who had showed up at Grace Bud's residence and stolen her and killed her, is Albert Fish. He's got him. Well, he's sort of got him because he just moved out. But he, at least he knows who it is. Close enough. He then asked the landlady, Frida Schneider, if she knows where he had went. And she says she did not, but that he would be back in mid-December, so that was about a month away, to collect a check that one of his sons in North Carolina sends him every month. And it's at that point, and this is where Detective King is kind of the fucking man of this story, because he rents a room there at the boarding house, abandons all responsibilities, and begins 24-7 surveillance around the clock, staking out the place single-handedly, waiting for Albert Fish to return to collect this check that his son was be, would be sending. He, he also discovers while he's waiting for Albert to return that Albert's son, uh, John, who was 20 years old, John Fish was, uh, 21 years old, he worked in the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was a program that had been set up by, under President Roosevelt, and he was sending his uh, Civilian Conservation Corps paychecks back to his father, Albert. But his son wasn't living, so he didn't have the extra noise of another set of foot footsteps in that room. and everything. It was just out. He was just waiting for Albert because, like, nobody else was, was going to show up, right? Are you talking about Detective King? Well, he rented a room, but he like his son was never showing up to the No, place. he was like mailing these. them. Mm, okay. All right. His son was mailing these letters uh to this boarding house and Albert Fish was gonna be there in a in a few weeks to collect the last letter that he would be yes. receiving at that boarding house. So he moved out before he was able to receive that letter, knowing that his son was gonna send it there. But like I said, the reason he moved is because he had sent that letter. Yes. So he sent the letter knowing that that's for a murder. He's like, better bounce again. That's what I'm saying, man. There's so many cases that we have, and I've talked about them over all three parts where I'm like, and then he moves here, and then he's gone, and people are probably like, well, that's completely irrelevant. Why even bring it up? And this is why. There's so many cases where we know he moved, but we yeah, don't it, know why. Yeah, it seems like you could you could attach this as part of his M.O. Something horrible happened. He did yeah. something horrible and then fucking bounced. We should start a whole podcast just on that, like trying to, we'll call it gone fishing. And we 
go to each of those places where he moved and around that time and look for cold you cases. You could absolutely do that. Because, I mean, we have the dates. And we also know where he lived at the time. So you could go yeah. around that area, right, and look at the newspapers from that time and see if, I guarantee you, something happened. I can he guarantee He probably you. posted ads or he posted want, you know, service. I'm sure there's probably even newspaper postings that have gone un- unnoticed. We could look those up. On December 13th. Detective King was summoned to police headquarters to attend a regular meeting. Nothing special. He's pissed that he has to leave, though. He's been, like I said, not sleeping much, probably drinking a whiskey, eating a lot of toast, um, smoking cigarettes, just living at this boarding house, waiting for fish to show his face. And just as he walks in to the police department, he gets a frantic call from landlady Frieder Schneider. Typical. He's there right now. The one time you leave. That's when Albert Fish showed up. (laughs) So King told her, Detective King said, delay him as much as possible. Don't let him know what's going on. Just try to make it casual. Delay him. I'm going to hurry back as quick. So he grabs his coat probably quickly off of a a coat hanger, a coat rack. He grabs it off real quick, and he's running down the steps of the police headquarters. He's throwing it on, and he's got his hat on, but it was like a cool hat then, right? Because hipsters hadn't taken it from us. And the captain, the captain says to the captain says to him, King, where do you think you're going? And he had put the hat on and it kind of was looking down and he looked over. He just looks over his shoulder at him and he says, I'm going fishing. (laughs) (laughs) And then while he's running away, the police chief, he's like, I've got the mayor on my ass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then why's the mayor always on the police chief's ass in every pol- detective movie? The mayor's breathing to- down my fucking throat. <laughs> God damn it, King! Cu- you need to get to- turn in your gun and badge. <laughs> it cuts to his wife. She's cutting potatoes at home, and then she just like kind of crumples into a sobbing mess, and she's like, <laughs> "King." Detective King, come. Uh-huh. Even she calls uh-huh. him Detective King. Yeah. <laughs> Even when they're fucking. Oh, Detective King. <laughs> he still keeps his badge on. He just shoves it into his pecs. <laughs> so he's on his way back. So he rushes back to the boarding house. And when he arrives inside, he founds. I wish I could say that there was this big, dramatic capture of albert fish right the, the with how crazy this story has been but when detective king gets back to this boarding house albert fish is sitting at frida schneider's kitchen table just sipping a cup of coffee and wearing a mismatched outfit of striped trousers and a tweed jacket detective king says quote you're albert fish unquote and albert just looks up at him he looks him up and down from foot to hat pushes his chair back, stands up, and makes a beeline for King while reaching into his pocket. He pulls out a razor blade, like, yeah, this is what you get, see? Creepy. Just pulls out a blazer. He's coming at him. But Detective King, and this is true, hits him with one, like, judo chop! (laughs) And, like, knocks the blade out of his hand. Hits him on the wrist. And Albert's frail old body immediately drops the razor and falls back into the chair. Duty chop! It's Detective King. 
It's amazing. Now, like I said, Fish slumped back down into his chair and gave up immediately. After five decades of rape, molestation, murder, and everything else under the sun, Albert Fish has been captured. And he will never see freedom again. At the police station, it doesn't take long for him to start confessing. But whenever he does so, it's almost in a bored tone, like he's annoyed more than anything. He tells officers that he had been the one to write the letter. He had taken Grace, and he had killed her. That night, just as it was getting dark, Albert Fish rides in a police car with Detective King and four other officers. Uh, and those other officers are traveling behind them. They were in a convoy. And uh, Albert leads them to Wisteria College in Westchester, where he had done that horrible deed to, to Grace Bud. He takes oh, them. College? College. Cottage. 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 Sorry. Cottage. Cottage. He takes him upstairs to the bedroom and he excitedly reenacts everything that he had done to Grace Bud six years prior. He does it, the whole thing for him, the whole spiel. Very excitedly, very happy about it. Afterwards, he leads them outside and through the woods a little ways up the hill to the rock wall. And it's there that they find the upper portion of Grace Bud's skull, some ribs, a couple of sections of spine the butcher knife, and the saw. Um, and they had to dig around a little bit for that. Like I said, she'd been laying there for six years. Animals had dragged much of the body away. There wasn't much left. It was just bones. The knife was never found. But all of this evidence was taken back to the police station in an Easter basket. What? That's true. A woven oh. Easter basket. There's a picture of one of the police officers carrying it like he's fucking hunting for eggs. Sure, they meant well, but... The optics of the thing. Right? Yeah. And Albert Fish is booked in for murder. Upon a physical examination of Albert Fish, so they they do a full physical, during the x-ray portion, they discover 29 large needles buried in Albert Fish's gooch. 29 needles. Many of them had been in there for so long that they had began to erode. That is not a large space. And they've been in there so long, that had to have been just a vid- visual aberration. Just Well, it's good that you bring up the visual of it because this visual is still available today on Google. You can type in Albert Fish X-Ray right now and see the very X-Ray for yourself. Doing it. Oh, my goodness. How did he even walk? He loved it. What is going on? Looks like he got fucked by Pinhead. Wow. I don't know. I can't can't even wrap my head around how that... mm. Not even in the same place. No, they're all over. I mean, they've moved around over the years. Yeah, it looks like there's one like in his lower buttock. Yeah, I mean, he didn't just stick them in his gooch. He also had them in his abdomen and his thighs. Oh, gosh. Also, they discover that he has syphilis. Oh, of course. I'll bet she was frustrated with that, like, which kid gave me this? Um, Well, I I don't think that it's a stretch to say that Albert Fish likely also participated in sex workers. See, again, you know, it's hard to find a woman or anybody that is interested in doing the things that he wanted to do. But if you pay him enough money, I'm sure he could convince some sex workers to do the stuff that he wanted to. Yeah, again. And although this isn't documented, I I would not put it past him. And that's probably a lot of missing crime that happened. I'll bet. I'll bet you're right. 
and sex okay, workers right. in the 30s and 20s and teen and not teen teen teens um not as clean as sex workers today yeah didn't know a lot about personal hygiene and condoms or any of that stuff so yeah the 10 day trial begins on March 11th 1935 and it uh, went off for the most part without dramatics on Fish's part. Dramatics weren't really his style for the most of the trial. He just sat there and looked bored, uninterested, uh, daydreaming a lot of times. He was kicked back a lot of times, just not that interested in the whole thing. Which is, if you think about it, it's also interesting because a lot of these killers, they relive the moments when brought back up in trial. Yeah. That's an interesting response to have or not have, I guess. There are pictures of him, you know, not during the trial, but prior to the trial and after the trial. And he just looks so it looks the way that you would look if you worked for like a company that does accounting and they're Mm. in the middle of a PowerPoint presentation. (laughs) Totally engrossed on spreadsheeting. I'm making spreadsheets on Microsoft Word. Innovations with pivot tables. (laughs) That's how he looks. Like he's in the middle of that PowerPoint presentation. On Monday, March 25th, 1935, Albert Fish, you know, that with TCK, we don't go much into the trials unless something extremely interesting happened. His family was called to the stand. Everybody, I mean, they just, yeah, he's, he's been weird since we were born. He did this stuff. He's crazy. On March 25th, 1935, Albert Fish is sentenced to death by electric chair at Sing Sing Prison. He does spend the next 10 months in prison, and it's there. While he's there, he writes letters. He worries about his finances for some reason, and he annoyed the ever-living shit out of the warden. He whined so much. I actually had inmates like this that drove me fucking nuts that, you, you know, you get... A co- there's a couple different kinds of inmates that you get. You can categorize all of them. Um, and one kind you get are the whiny ones that won't just do their time and shut the fuck up. They always, like, need something. You know what I mean? Like, like they're entitled. Yes. Like, they're, like there's some something to be uh, grieved, uh, grievance to make. Yes. Always. And then you have my favorite inmates were the ones that, that they just, like, did their time. I mean, we give you a bed and sheets and you get food three times a day and there's a tv back there it's like all your basic needs are met and they and there are inmates that acknowledge that and they like if they if they really need something i'm happy to get it for them but you also have these inmates that just like are always needing something it's like always oh hey man can you do hey hey can you get hey can you pass this message hey look no and then they're really they're really sincere when they think that you're going to take it as a badge of honor when they're like, you know what? Everybody here, so, you're good. I like you. You're you're straight. You're straight. I like that. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, guy. You're in here for child molestation. Yeah, I don't care what you say ever. What you think of me. Yeah. I'll tell you another thing. This is off topic. But one thing I, I learned while working corrections is the, the inmates that were actually dangerous – we're never the loud ones. Yeah. Never. Never. Not once. Ever. 
And we pretty quick, we, you know, you get a pretty good idea of, of who the dangerous in, the truly dangerous inmates were. And every single time, it was always, every fucking time up, it was always a guy that was respectful and quiet. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. Kept to himself. I would wager that that's because they know that the tip of the iceberg is all you know, you know? Exactly. They're not trying to prove anything. They don't have that ego. Like, they know that they're the biggest dick in the house. They know. They don't have to do that. And those guys, man, every time I would book somebody in, if it was somebody that's like, popping there, fuck you, fuck your mom. It was just always like, okay, guy, I've, I've already figured you out. Yeah. I already know you're just a big ball of hot air. It's the guys that are quiet. Those are the ones you should be afraid of. And that's true. That's 100% true. That's why I try to stay quiet. <laughs> so Albert, he's writing, uh, he's writing letters. He's worrying about his finances. The uh, warden absolutely hated him because of he was always trying to get the warden to do things for him. Hey, can you contact so-and-so about this $3 that he owes me? Uh, can you do this? Can you do that? Hey, I could really use this. Hey, he whined about his other, his neighboring cellmates. So inmates in other cells being too loud. He found it hard to sleep at night because they were too loud. That kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff that he was always aggravating the warden about. Anyways, Albert Albert Fish spends the next 10 months in prison there at Sing Sing. And on Thursday, January 16th, 1936, it's execution day up at Sing Sing Prison in Ossining, New York. It's execution day, though, and nobody ever reports on this. I guarantee you this is probably new news for anybody that's uh, heard this story before. It's not execution day for one man, though, not just Albert Fish. It's execution day for two men. Oh. Albert Fish did not die alone that day. There were two men executed. Him, obviously, Albert Fish, and a one-legged 41-year-old black man. He had lost his leg in the Spanish-American War. A one-legged 41-year-old black man named John Smith who had murdered a fellow by the name of James Wilson in a Harlem barroom fight. So Albert Fish is going to die alongside John Smith. Alongside a one-legged black man. Yes. Probably not the first one-legged black person he's been around because the other ones he ate the other leg. I would much rather him die alone. Oh, yeah. Like, I would like to have to, him to have to go through all this alone. Yeah. You know, because one of the things that he whined to the warden about a lot was the fact that his children didn't come and visit him while he was in prison. Aw. Because they had found out that their dad was a monster, an absolute monster. How sad. So it's John's, it's execution day for John Smith and Albert Fish, January 16th, 1936. It's a Thursday. And that evening, they are both given their last meal, which was a roasted chicken. Um, Albert Fish just picked at it while John Smith devoured his plate. Many people report that Albert Fish's last meal, you'll see it on a lot of those BuzzFeed, like last meals of inmates, that his last meal was sardines and dried fish, that that was his final meal. But this is not true. Uh, The reason that's reported is because he had had that meal a few months prior as his last meal, but the execution was delayed at the very last minute. Oh, so it really wasn't his last, last minute. No, my long shot. That was months prior when he was scheduled to die on that day, and then last minute they called it off. So his last meal was roasted chicken. At 10.30 p.m. that evening, Reverend Anthony Peterson arrives at Fish's cell to begin praying with him. And then at 10.50 p.m., just 20 minutes later, the two men, John Smith and Albert Fish, are shuffled out of their cells into the ex- execution room batter's box. 
And it was the room behind the execution room. So there was like a two room kind of, you know, you're on deck. We got to do this in order. You can't have both of you standing at the room at the same time. One of them just warms up while the other. Yeah. They got one stretching while the other one's sitting in the chair. Yeah. Yeah. Albert Fish is wearing a blue shirt and black trousers, and John Smith is using a crude crutch. At 10.58 p.m., eight minutes after arriving into the execution room batter's box, John Smith is taken into the execution room first. Also standing there beside the uh, electric chair is Reverend Anthony Peterson, who is reading from 23rd Psalms in the Bible. This electric chair was the OG Old Sparky. That's what it was called, Old Sparky. And this is the OG Old Sparky. There are many Old Sparkies throughout prison history. This is the uh, this is the OG. But in front of the uh, Old Sparky, there are a handful of witnesses sitting on six wooden benches that that are reminiscent of uh, church pews. Yeah, and they have all come to watch the executions. Now, in this day and age, you would get orders to come to an execution the same way you get jury duty. I don't oh, know really? if you knew that. Yeah, it was uh, it was optional for the victim's family to come, but you would also there were a required number of witnesses, and they would uh, send those letters out much the way we do jury duty. You were selected to come and watch executions. Oh, I didn't know that. That's creepy. At 11 p.m. that night, John Smith, the 41 year old one legged black man who had murdered James Wilson in a Harlem barroom fight, he sits down in the electric chair there. And uh, stares forward calmly at the witnesses. He's very calm, very chill. Sits down, stares forward at the witnesses sitting there in the pews. A black hood is placed over his head. An electrode that is traditionally placed. So it's tradition to place the electrode uh, on the right leg in a slit in the pants. But uh, he didn't have a right leg, so it's placed on the left. And at this point, Smith begins praying. The water and salt solution soaked sponge is placed on his freshly shaven head. And then the electrode is placed on top. And that's done to shoot the current right into the brain. At 11.03 p.m., the switch is thrown on John Smith. And at 11.04 p.m., John Smith is pronounced dead. And the executioners quickly move on. They drag his body out of the chair, put it on a gurney, and wheel it out. And at 11.06 p.m., Fish is brought out of the batter's box and strapped into the electric chair while Reverend Peterson continues to read from Psalms in the Bible. The black hood is then quickly thrown over his head. He has no last words. At 11.08 p.m. on January 16th, 1936, four minutes after sitting in the chair, executioner Robert Elliott throws the switch on one of the most sadistic human beings that has ever lived and sends 2,000 volts of electricity through his body for a total of 15 seconds. One minute later at 11.09 p.m., the attendant physician steps forward, places a stethoscope to Albert Fish's chest, and he is pronounced dead. 11.09 p.m., January 16th, 1936, the monster is dead. So there wasn't, why do I, in my brain, why do I think that there were like complications with all the crotch metal? That was a rumor that was started by the newspapers. Not substantiated. It was, you know, newspapers in this time were always trying to one-up each other. Oh, flames threw, flew from his eyes and electric shot from his cock. None of that happened. Um, mm. The executioner, Robert Elliott, later said that Albert Fish's execution was no different than any other man of the hundreds of men that he killed, mind you. 
it was no different whatsoever. He died just like all the rest of them. There was no fireworks, no sparks, none of that shit. He went down just like everybody else did. Robert Elliott actually died three years later in 1939. But uh, that's beside the point. But probably not by electric chair. No, it was a heart condition. Yeah. From entrance to execution, Albert Fish never said a single word. See, and that would be hard, too. That would be hard because just no closure, you know? Grace Bud's family wasn't even there. They didn't even go. They didn't feel like he was worth their time. Yeah. Now, there is a very famous picture of Albert Fish going around on the Internet, and it's him sitting in the electric chair. That picture is not real. I just want to point that out. That is a very well-done Photoshop. Um, A lot of people pass it as a real, him being strapped into the chair. That chair that you see in that picture is the chair that Albert Fish died in, but it's not. The the man that's sitting there, the body that's used, is actually a black man. And that picture was taken um, during a rehearsal for an electrocution because they did do rehearsals. Oh, that would be a fun job to have to go and kind of do your own, like, dress rehearsal for your own death. Well, they wouldn't do it with the inmate that was going to be killed. They would have another inmate that was there for some petty shit. And they're like, hey, you're going to play the role of so-and-so. It was practice for the real execution. Yeah. But that that is not Albert Fish. That's Albert Fish's head photoshopped onto another man's body. That you Mm. see a lot of him sitting in the electric chair. That's not him. By the way, I watched The Green Mile last night. I don't know why. But it ended up being such a perfect watch prior to recording this episode specifically. And here's why. Um, in the movie, the entire thing uh, with John Coffey and Billy the Kid and all the shenanigans on death row there in the Green Mile, they take place in 1935 in the movie. Albert Fish rode the lightning in 1936. Oh. So the time period is perfect. I mean, Green Mile takes place in 35, the movie anyway. I think the book was different. I believe the book was 32. But the movie takes place in 1935. Albert Fish was killed by electric chair in 36. And as far as accuracy goes in the Green Mile in terms of executions in that time period, they did their research, man. It was like really spot on. The whole the whole thing. Watching it, I was like honestly super impressed. So to get a good idea of what Albert's execution was like um, and probably the days prior leading up to his execution, because if you remember in the movie, they're in death row. So those cells are separate from the main prison. To get a good idea of what Albert's execution was like, I honestly, I just recommend watching The Green Mile because it's pretty spot on. I love that movie. Also, the idea of Albert Fish being in a cell next to John Coffey also kind of makes me giggle a little bit. You know, that part I'm kind of, I'm, I'm amazed at that uh, he even survived long enough to be electrocuted. Like, you would think that he would have been a target. Well, if you remember in the movie, they take him right off of the uh, transportation bus, right into his cell, and they were divided cells. There was one to a cell. It was death yeah. row. I mean Albert Fish. He oh, you mean Albert Fish? I thought you were yeah, talking about I mean, John Coffey. Poor John. Yeah, John Coffey. But, no, Albert Fish, like, it just surprises me that in real life, like, that there weren't yeah. cellmates that just would have pushed him into pain. Well, he was in his own order. cell. Just like yeah. John Coffey. Mm. And on a side note, if you haven't seen The Green Mile, what the fuck is wrong with you? Go watch it now. <laughs> Turn off this podcast. <laughs> About an hour later, after Albert Fish's execution, after he's pronounced dead, at around midnight, back in Manhattan, a reporter, those Weasley, disgusting reporters, journalists, knocked for over 10 minutes 
on the door of Grace's parents, Delia and Albert Budd at one thirty fit at one thirty five West Twenty Fourth Street. I would have put a bullet through that door. Yeah, just blast away. Like I said, they hadn't attended the execution. They were in bed. Um, and that building that they lived in there it was built in 1901. That apartment building is still there to this day. And you yourself can now get a spot there for just $4,000 a month. Right now, you can get an apartment there in the same building that they lived in for four grand a month. It's probably 55 square feet. God, why don't we all live in Manhattan? Ah, this episode brought to you by Zillow. <laughs> uh, so this reporter beats on their door for 10 minutes. Finally, Delia Bud, she swings the door open. She's in her ro- robe, and she just stares at the reporter. Uh, the reporter said, quote, Your daughter's murder has just been executed. What do you have to say? Unquote. Before Delia could answer, Al Bud calls sleepily from the bedroom, quote, Ma, put that light out and come back to bed. Unquote. Delia looks at the reporter for just a moment, doesn't say anything, and then slams the door in his face. The following day, Albert Fish was buried in an unmarked grave in Flushing Cemetery in Queens on January 22nd, 1936. Six days after Albert's execution, Grace Bud's bones are handed over to her parents, and she is buried in Long Island. And that closes the book on Albert Fish. Let's never talk about him again. Okay. I'm so happy to be done with this. Because, yeah. Oh, God damn. It's a lot. How are we, how are we doing on, on, do you know who you're doing next? I do know who I'm doing next. You don't have to tell me. I'm not going to, to but yes, I've already got some of it written. Okay. And it's, um, on a scale of one to Albert Fish. Uh, there's a lot more comedy in it. Okay. But uh, yeah, there's there's murder. Okay. I can handle that. Not as I dark. A lot more comedy. What's your favorite? Um, what's your favorite part of when I call you? Whenever, uh, probably whenever we hang up. Well, buddy, I'm I'm gonna get us there tomorrow again. I'm gonna call you, and we'll. I'll look forward to the call. You'll look f- um, forward to it ending. Yep. Probably you look forward to it any because, like, if you're like me, you end up, I journal about our phone calls. So you're probably like, oh, I just want to run and document all the jokes and the friendship. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hey, I want to say something. Kind of get us out of this rut that we just got spun into. Is it about our friendship? If you enjoy TCK, I put a lot of time into, into this. And it would help a lot if you want to continue seeing the show um, released consistently and, and, you know, keep happening. It helps a lot to go rate and review True Crime Kent on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Also, we have a Patreon, 1159 Media. Type in 1159 Media. Join us on Patreon if you want. You can get early releases of TCK um, as well as a daily show that, well, the never day. It's an every other day show that me and Op do called uh, Extraterrestrials, and you'll get that on Patreon. You'll get early releases of 911 calls and a bunch of other stuff. And that's on our Patreon at 1159 Media. And uh, go rate and review True Crime Camp wherever you listen to podcasts. And I would really appreciate that. It helps a lot.
I also learned a little tidbit a little while ago that if people go in Apple Podcasts, if you go in and you click the three little dots next to every episode and click download, uh, that actually acts as a an independent data point for uh, Apple Podcasts, and it looks it it shows that not only you're you like the podcast, but you're engaged, and that means a lot for our success. So we would appreciate it, and I love you guys. All of the listeners and op. I love you too. No, I was talking to the listeners. Oh, uh huh. I was going to say an op. Bye. Love you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh.